we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. This is your host, Daniel the D3 Cohen, coming at you live from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm an 18-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. Now, as Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, I can be accomplished by young artists and producers working from home. This is a show for music lovers, and people who love to hear about how music is made. There's gonna be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Hopefully though, this show will be especially helpful for all the people like me who work in home studios. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work in their own home studios, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. On our last episode, we had Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, keyboardist, and synth nerd Billy J. Stein on the program. It was a lot of fun talking to Billy J. You know, him being a synth nerd and owning a studio that's kind of a keyboardist dream, it was very fun to just be a keyboard player uh, during our conversation and just totally geek out on the gear he has, as well as the crazy cool stuff he's done on Broadway, both as a musician and a composer, as well as a sound designer and a programmer. You can find that episode and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcast.com. You can also find other episodes of Ready to Record at our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, four-time BMI award-winning composer, producer, engineer, and musician, Tree Adams. Tree Adams has had quite the career. He's been in touring bands, most notably the 90s jam band The Hatters, alongside Billy J. Stein, who we had on our last episode. More recently, Tree has been known for his work as a composer, scoring various films and TV shows. Lately, Tree has been working on the popular crime drama NCIS New Orleans, as well as Fox's Lethal Weapon and the CW's sci-fi show The 100. 
Before that, Tree worked on Perception, for which he won two of his four BMI awards. In addition to his BMI awards, Tree was also nominated for an Emmy for his work on Canterbury's Law. Today, we talk to Tree about what keeps him motivated in the film and TV composer space, work he's done on some of his current shows, as well as some cool tidbits about bands he's been in and how his studios are set up. So, without further ado, let's give a ready-to-record welcome to Mr. Tree Adams. Welcome to the show, Mr. Tree Adams. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You've done a lot, and you're and you're and you never cease to do a lot. I I know I've watched a few shows that your music has been on. My parents are huge fans of Lethal Weapon, um, and you know I've watched the One Hundred a little bit, and I know my parents and I were both. Uh, all three of us were very big fans of Perception, um, and uh, and funnily enough, you produced a record that I listen to nearly every day. Uh, Craig Dreyer's uh, oh, yeah. Fiends Four. <laughs> that was a, um, that was a lot of fun. That one, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. It it definitely it definitely shows through in the music. So what? I've I've heard the story a little bit of how you made the transition from being the guy in the Hatters, being the touring musician dude, to being composer for film and TV. I I hear I've heard what started you there. What kept you in it? Well, I think it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, you you really get to. Um you get to explore different styles of music and you get to collaborate with lots of different musicians and you get to collaborate with filmmakers with the end being storytelling. And I think the storytelling part of it's very compelling. Um, you really, you start to kind of uh, tap into what the filmmaker was going for and what, these characters are about and, and you try and, you know, explore the substrata of, of what's going on in, in their arc by, you know, imbuing it with emotion or pathos or, you know, you know, tapping into the thing that makes that character tick. And, and that's sort of a fun dimension to explore. And, and it, 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 opens up new worlds musically and kind of it's it gives you a lot of freedom and and you and you grow and it's it's uh it's something that I think keeps you looking for the next opportunity you know mhm totally i i know just in that composition brain i i do feel like it is it it is in many ways more fulfilling. So I don't think 
people 100% understand the difference between writing the kind of music that goes on records and the 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 more sense of compositional music and writing as a composer instead of you know that forward guitar playing rock and roll i think there's there's also i always draw the distinction between the applied arts and the arts there you know i mean it's like when you're making a record it's sort of art for art's sake i mean yes if there's a record label involved or if you're trying to think about your fan base or like what's going to go over with you know the people who are who are digging you and who bought your last record there are those considerations but it's still a little bit more a blank canvas whereas if you're if you're in the applied arts, if you're in the business of writing music for a show of some kind, it's like you're servicing that show. And and sometimes, you know, you don't get to take the wailing guitar solo or, you know, you don't get to be the star of your own musical moment. You, you're really more, uh, you know, subtle. Maybe you're droning for a little bit or you're finding some undulating <clears throat> bass pulse underneath that kind of supports the tension or you know things that you got to understand like what your role is and and it's i mean that happens in in ensemble you know stuff and just being in a band right like sometimes you got to think like well how am i going to be tasty and like you know Mm -hmm. it's the notes i'm not playing that are making this work better you know but but it's that mindset within the production that's helpful too because you're like okay I realize in this car chase, we're going to be hearing the engine of like this 70s muscle car. So that's going to occupy this entire frequency. Whereas, you know, I would love to have like a big barreling synth bass that's like pulsating and making this sound edgy and cool. Maybe the thing that people are really going to hear from me is like some building high tremolo strings and like dissonant horn swells every once in a while. So I kind of lean into that. You know, and, and you kind of just got to know your your role, like how they're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So when you're when you're in that brain, when you're when you're thinking about that, let's, let's just talk about how 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 you go about something when someone just approached you to do a composition for, let's say, a movie. When, when you look at that, what are you looking for? Are you looking for something in the script? Are you looking for something that popped out in improv in a first draft of the cut? Um, what jumps out to you when you're thinking about the music of a new project? It's a good question because it, it, it sort of comes in, in many different forms process-wise. I mean, you have some directors who know exactly what they want and you know maybe they've even pointed to certain music as temp music and said like if you know we want this and that that then you're a little bit mm. uh constricted in terms of instrumentation and you know even maybe some of the the intervals that you're going to be using you know because you're you 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 get a certain mood from different intervals, you know. Like if people are if they're doing like 
major or minor, if it's like, if they're relying on like a flat six kind of vibe, there's certain things that kind of like say, this is, this is a feeling that we want to tap into. And then you're challenged with, well, how do I make that my own? How do I make it unique to this film? Because you don't want to be in the business of just sort of copying things. Um, and then that's its own challenge. And you see that quite a lot today because people often rely on temp music and temp visual effects and temp sound effects to, to render something in the edit bay that's as finished as possible to please the producers sure. who are paying for it and things like that, or the, the network or the studio or whoever it may be. But, you know, you have to figure out how to navigate through those channels and find something that's going to keep everybody happy and then where you can create something that's your own and that's cool. Then you get situations like I'm doing a horror movie right now that's an independent film uh, for an old buddy of mine, and he's given me more of like a you know, an open, like a little tabula rasa kind of vibe where I'm like, okay, I'm looking at it. I'm reading the script. I'm looking at this scenes over and over again. I'm trying to, you know, come up with themes that I can kind of develop throughout. I'm playing with different instrumentation, what feels right for the different characters. And, you know, I try to get involved as early as possible in the process so I actually have enough time to you know, go down, uh, like on a, you know, a road that, that maybe I'm not going to follow in the end, you know, and, and be like, you know Mm -hmm. what, that was a cool idea, but it's not quite right. And then be able to kind of like scrap it and go back to something new. Um, it, it's never fun to have to redo things, but I I find you do often need to kind of like take another pass at it, you know, and many of these projects, right. if, If you've, you know, been hired to do a film, often you have like, you know, six to eight weeks to get it done. And, you know, maybe if you're, if you've known the, the director or, or the showrunner, if it's, a, if it's a TV series, maybe you'll get a little bit more time to develop things ahead of time, but, but you never have as much time with it as they've had because they are with it from the beginning, whether it's the script or developing it or selling it. So they've often had like a year, two years to develop something. So they're really in it. So you're not as in it as they are. So it takes a minute to like, to get in it. <laughs> sure. Now, here's, here's a question I'm, I'm always curious to ask guys in, in, uh, in sort of situations like you are where you've been both a, you know, rock musician and bands and, and, uh, composer for film and tv which one do you find obviously they're quite different but which one do you find is maybe simpler to work with as in like which which one is easier for you to write for do you do you find yourself easier to is it easier for you to come up with an inspiration for a new song for uh the howland volts or is it easier for you to write a piece of music for an indie horror film? I think it's, it's easier to write for uh, yourself as an artist because it's just sort of like, there's less, uh, there's less sort of hoops to jump through. And, but 
I find it's harder to sign off on something when it's when it's done because you know I feel like I'm the the uh, the last line of of defense and and I you know it's just hard to kind of like accept that it might be okay this is as good as it possibly could be um, whereas if I'm doing it for somebody else's vision I kind of like. I feel like there's a certain point at which I'm like, okay, this is, this is what they're looking for and this is going to be fine. And if they don't like it, they're the last line of defense and they'll, they'll make an adjustment and I'll follow. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the, yeah, that's, that's the general layout on that. I will say though, that sometimes it is really easy to write for, uh, someone else's vision because you're like, you don't have to have an epiphany or like some cool lyric pop into your head or, you know, some cool chords that came to you or whatever. You, you just kind of look at what's happening on screen and you're like, okay, well that needs this. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. No, I, I, and I feel like, I feel like sometimes that inspiration comes to everybody in a sense, because it is a story already versus those of us who write music for bands that we're in or even ourselves if we're doing solo things, it is, you know, it is sort of coming up with inspiration from, not from nothing, but sometimes from very little. Whereas, you know, you get that, you do get to experience someone else's inspiration and follow that. And I, I, I feel like that's a very cool position to be in um when especially especially when the only experience i've had so far is writing for my own band or maybe doing collaboration with a friend so um i've always well, found it interesting you probably get inspiration like when you're playing with you know your band or your friends or something right like when you play with other people sometimes like something will happen there are happy accidents and things like that 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 that's one thing that we we don't really have as much of in the composer situation because you're you're more like you know you're more likely just sort of sitting by yourself in the laboratory kind of like you know tweaking knobs and playing different instruments and kind of like looking at picture um it's a little bit less of a conversation that way you know right Now, when you're when you're in composer brain, what what is the what's the thing that keeps you in that space and and keeps you from trailing off into something that you may know that the 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 person who you're working with doesn't want it. Like if you say, "Oh, this might be cool," but then you sort of realize oh i have to pull that back where where basically what i'm trying to ask is where where do you draw the line when you're in a compositional space uh i'm sorry you you it broke up in the last second there i missed uh i missed the last part of the question no problem basically i'm just asking you know when you're in composition mode if you find yourself sort of 
improving a thing um where do you where do you find yourself drawing a line where you think it sounds cool but you may not think that the person you're working with on the project would agree yeah that that happens a lot because you just sort of have to balance uh chasing something you know some inspiration something that you think is cool musically and what's going to serve the picture and in the end sometimes if you feel that you're slipping into that what i'll do is i will for instance i will take a break i'll go have some lunch or a cup of coffee and then i'll come back and i'll look at what i've got with as sort of neutral and an uninvested kind of spirit as i can muster and i and i make that call there and i say well you know this sort of is cool but maybe it's just a little too far and i think we need to scrap it and go again or i i say you know what this we can salvage this thing but this one melody that I was doing with this one instrument is just from outer space and it's not going to work. Or I could say, well, we'll, we'll deliver a version with that and without it and sort of see if they're going to follow me into this kind of risky pool. (laughs) Sure. Now in that vein, when you have something that you're sort of debating, do you ever, if it's scrapped from a project, do you ever find yourself using that in another project or maybe even using that for a song of your own? Yeah. Yeah, that has happened. Um, I try and sort of like flag things that I come up with that are cool that I can't I can't use and try and find a home for them later. I mean, what's happened over the years is, you know, I've developed a – library of my own you know musical cues and songs that you know i end up licensing um or if i'm on an independent film or something like that where they don't have a big budget and they need stuff and i've got stuff in my bag that they can use here and there you know um and it's been useful because uh you know like there's things that that come up in every film every film has like a scene in a coffee shop or a bar where they need like, you know, something that sounds like an old Motown tune or something that sounds, you know, like a bluesy roadhouse vibe or like some hip hop in the background. Or like at one point I was hired to do a bunch of music for uh, the movie Dawn of the Dead. And so I, I just wrote like tons of music tunes, did tons of music covers that they asked me to do, got paid a certain amount for it, what they used they used what they didn't use was mine to kind of like lend anytime uh, you know a, a production needed like a music track and i had these fully produced music tracks that sounded like ridiculous with the soupy strings and everything and it's just good to have like all these random things in your bag totally um i love that I, I i love that you had to do music i find that how often do people talk about music? I feel like it's 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 there, but not very often talked about. It's so random, and it was in, in in Dawn of the Dead. It's like it's like a huge character in the movie because like George Romero, his intention was to kind of show that we were becoming zombies, you know, and mall culture and all that. And like most of the the 
the movie takes place in a mall. So everywhere they went, they're being chased by these zombies and like the Muzak was playing, like they're in the elevator and the Muzak's on. So it, it's just kind of ridiculous. And I recorded with these incredible players. Like I had all these guys from the Brian Setzer Orchestra in there and it was like, we were all like just laughing, like doing this Muzak shit. Unbelievable. Um, but it, you'll you'll be surprised with, you know, in the, in the film and TV thing, how many times you have to do some of these moments like, you know, mariachi music or like, you know, some kind of like good, the bad and the ugly kind of like standoff, you know, in the desert. There's just all of these references that we've mm-hmm. all seen musically that, that people try to invoke. And, uh, and it's kind of fun. It's like you kind of explore all these different little musical angles. Not that Muzak was the most exciting adventure on the way, but... <laughs> <laughs> one of them well it's certainly something yeah, I mean yeah. I don't know it's it's something that's re- that's really all I can muster for Muzak yeah Muzak fans I, I apologize to all the Muzak fans out there but that's right you know I, for, for lack of anything better the legions of Muzak um, fans <laughs> <laughs> They are they are few in number, but mighty, I'm sure. Um, so one of your one of the things that you've been working on um, a lot that has been getting a lot of um, attention is NCIS New Orleans. Um, Scott Bakula, great cast. Um, How did you get hooked up in that? Well, I think they had done a couple seasons and they were using a composer from L.A. And the production is in New Orleans, but the mm-hmm. post-production takes place in Los Angeles. And they wanted to find a composer to work with sort of more of the New Orleans palette and to kind of invoke a little bit more of like the blues and jazz uh, going on in the city there, but someone who could also kind of interface with the Los Angeles contingent. And they had uh, sure. a bunch of, you know, they, they took a bunch of demos and I was one of the people submitted and then they kind of had us uh, do a little bake off and, uh, then they narrowed it down to a few people and um, we all came in for a meeting and I said, uh, you know, I'd love to, to do it. And if I, if, if you brought me on, I'd love to record in New Orleans sometimes and work with players down there. And um, I knew some cats in New Orleans from my touring days and things like that. And I know, at the time, I, I had just recorded with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band guys uh, for this Howlin' Volts record that I did with my friend Cristiani. Um, and they were really excited about that idea, and they brought me on. And, um, you know, it's been, I don't know, four seasons uh, since I've been doing it, and I've really been enjoying it. That's really cool. Weren't you in an episode, like in a in a scene? I feel like I remember seeing you in a scene with George Porter and Cyril Neville. 
Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, that was that was that was awesome. Uh, they so the first season they had me on for the premiere of that season, they had me write a song uh, that Scott Bakula was going to perform like in his bar with the band. And so I they mm-hmm. they flew me to New Orleans to like record with some players, and so I had uh, I, I, we had the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, we had Ivan Neville. George Porter Jr. from the Meters, Cyril Neville playing percussion, uh, Raymond Weber on the drums. It was a really good band. And then they had us, some of us, not all of us, because they had whatever they'd cast for the uh, the look of the band. I think it was me, Cyril Neville, George Porter Jr., and, and Jelly Bean Alexander was the drummer. And um, hmm. it was it was a great, uh, great experience for me because – it was really welcoming, um, you know, everybody on, on set and, and Scott Bakula, everybody, all, all the producers are really cool. And, uh, and it was just a nice way to kind of get brought in, you know, and then it, it's been an ongoing, uh, great thing to have this relationship with all these amazing players down there. Um, and, and, and since then I go down and play, like we were living there last summer, my son and I, uh, for a month, my wife came out for a little bit, and our daughter was at camp. But I was doing like a weekly gig on Frenchman Street at, at DBA, and uh, I had this local band, you know, with uh, like Cyril Neville would sit in with us, Tony Hall from Dumpster Funk would sit in with us, uh, great musicians, Joe Ashlar, Donald Ramsey on the bass. Eric Boulevard on the drums, amazing horn section was like Mark Bro, Charlie Halloran, Dave Masucci. Actually, Dave Masucci from The Authority, sax player from The Authority. He was in New Orleans, so he was part of the band. That was a lot of fun. And I, you know, I hope to keep Great doing player. that and going down and playing with those guys, you know. Yeah, man, totally. I mean, I'm actually one of the it's it's kind of funny because one of the big influences of my playing is the meters. So it's it's fun to hear you talk about those guys because that whole New Orleans scene it influences my playing so much. I mean, hell, you know, I I grew up Zigaboo Modelist lived in Oakland, you know, still does, I think. He was talking about moving back to New Orleans, but I don't think he ever did. Um and it was always it was always cool to to have him around. Actually, he gave me my first real drum kit when I was about eight years old. Wow! Um, and that's still that's still sitting in my studio. That's that's a yeah. Ziggy's like he's the that's man. One of the um, worldly possessions. I <laughs> yeah. You're you're listening yeah. to the right stuff, bro. <laughs> that's uh, I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely trying to. You know, I mean, there's so much good music out there, but they're 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 definitely some of the best. Um, now, as far as it, when it comes to recording, um, I believe I read that you have two studios, one in your office and one at home. Um, when you're doing studio work, uh, what do you feel more comfortable in? Do you feel more comfortable going to a studio? Do you feel comfortable more comfortable at your home studio in the office what what's like 
your main space to be in when you're doing compositions or recording those compositions? It's interesting. I, I was, for, for the longest time, I had just this uh, home studio and I was writing here mm-hmm. and very comfortable. And, and I have typically like an assistant, just like one person, you know, like a protege who'd come in and every day and they had their own workspace kind of here within my space. And sometimes we would sort of tag team on my rig. Like after I'd finished writing, they'd come in and, you know, bounce MIDI and prep, you know, mix prep things or do score prep, like prepare, you know, a finale or Sibelius files for recording, things like that. And then, then as, as I started to get more and more of these sort of multiple project situations, I needed to have more people working here. Um, more than one assistant, uh, somebody full-time mixing and engineering. And so as that became the situation, it, it increasingly was clear to me that like I needed to kind of set up a space somewhere else. And, um, and also for clients too, because sometimes like, you know, if a director or producer comes in, sometimes, sometimes they're cool, like coming to your house and sometimes they want something a little more professional feeling. So um, although I feel like that's happening a little less and less now. I feel like people are getting kind of a little bit more in remote work mode. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but so I set up a space right. um, about 15, 20 minutes from here um, in Atwater Village. And I did that for six or seven years. And I maintained my writing studio. Didn't change anything. So that I could still write here but have my team in in the other space and I would kind of go back and forth and all the recording sessions would happen at the other space. And we were set up for larger ensemble recording. Like we could probably do, you know, a small string section, like, you know, 20, 20 players or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I started to kind of feel like, well, I'm wasting a little time driving to and from the space. I'm paying rent. And uh, I'd rather own the space. And then something happened a couple of years ago where we had the opportunity to buy this house behind my house. Um, so we bought this house behind my house and turned it into a recording studio and sort of connected the properties. And it's sort of separate, but really close by and really easy to kind of go between. And so the long and short of it is I'm still kind of doing that same thing where I still write. I'm I'm more comfortable in this writing space that I've always been in for writing, but for Mm -hmm. recording and kind of having a team, I have this other space. Um, And then of course, you know, the pandemic hit and just as we'd kind of gotten set up and into a workflow there, you know, we kind of had to disband that situation for now. (laughs) So but we'll get sure. back. We'll get back to that ultimately. And and uh, the other thing is, I'm interested in the idea of kind of having, a, you know, recording projects like, you know, in a place where like a you know I could do something with a band and you know where they could kind of come and set up comfortably and do their thing and we could you know produce a record there next door. So it's kind of conducive to that, you know. And some of the guys I've been working with in New Orleans, like I have been writing and producing some tracks for Cyril Neville recently. And, and, uh, 
and his son Omari Neville, for instance, mm. like he and I have been talking about maybe doing some recording. And like, I love the idea of like, you know, having a place where I could be like, hey, yeah, come stay here and let's record you, you know, and you have some space of your own. So hopefully when this, uh, when this pandemic subsides, we'll get back into some more of that too. <laughs> no, it sounds great. I mean, my own studio's out of my garage, and you know, people people drop in. They they come by. They knock on the they knock on the you know garage door, and it opens with the with the garage door opener. And you know, it's even even when you're doing like these pretty serious sessions, which I don't have many, but you know, when I when I have people coming in even just to sit in on tracks for my own band, you know, it, there is that professionalism still there because, you know, we've we've done our best, my parents and I, to make this space, you know, feel professional, yet there is that that there is that sense of, oh, this is this is still home, right? So Yeah, but I, I think I totally you get know, what you mean. That's that's cool for a while, dude. You're you're, you're you know, so many of the great, you know, recordings and so many great things happen in garages you know that <laughs> it's definitely yeah oh no it's totally. definitely like where it all begins you know i mean i mean hell the the band did some of their best writing working in the basement of big pink up in upstate new york and the basement tapes sound fantastic that garth engineered that are just coming yeah. out now or have come out in the last couple of years yeah so yeah, there's there's definitely some fun about this. I I I find your situation especially interesting to me because it sounds quite similar to how uh John O'Manson had his setup in uh New Mexico. He had his, his studio in New Mexico kitchen sink was initially in a house. Um and a lot of great records were recorded in that house. Um so I I I like that you have uh the ho- the house right behind you set up as a studio. I find that really kind of fun. Um, now you were talking about having a, having your two studios linked. Um, so I'd love to get into a little bit of gear conversation with you. Um, what's, what's sort of a go-to setup for you and how do you have the two studios linked? Well, we work primarily in pro tools and Mm -hmm. the, uh, we have a VE Pro set up uh, like on a second rig with them connected, you know, through Ethernet so they can pull samples off that. Um, and then my rig that I write on is there's a mir- like two assistants that I have uh, set up at these two workstations in the other studio. They have mirror rigs. So it's like the same exact plugins and uh you know ve pro setups so that each of those rigs has like two computers talking to each other and i will just post files so they can pull them down and bounce whatever midi i've got and format things in a certain way and then everybody's networked so we're once they prep something they they post it for the mixer who's in another room, like, you know, with the mixing board and the glass facing like the, you know, like in the control room facing like the live room. And so the mixer, you know, James, who has been with me for 
I don't know, like six years maybe now. Uh, then, you know, it's posted for James and then it's formatted in this way that we want it to be for, it's, we call it the matrix. It's all set up for stemming so that it's very easy to just hit one record pass and it prints stems so that all of the elements are separated out for when we deliver them to a dub stage. So basically it's, it's just, you know, things are networked, there's some mirror setups, and then we have a format that we, uh, you know, a template, a session template basically that we work out of uh, for when we deliver, um, you know, for, for the final dub uh, mix stage for whether it's, you know, film or television setup. Gotcha. Now I'm I'm really curious to hear about how you set up your stems because there's there're so many w- ways people do it. I know plenty of people just send raw individual tracks and then call that it. Some people, you know, uh give a drum bus stem so you have drums, stereo, keys, maybe stereo, guitars, stereo, bass, mono, things like that. Um how do you prefer setting up your stems? <clears throat> well, it could, it could depend on what's got to be delivered. And, you know, like if you have um, a film that's got like a, a long mix schedule, they want more stems. <clears throat> so they they may want, you know, each individual track. Uh, typically, like for a television series, you're delivering like about eight stems. and Depending on gotcha. the instrumentation, you know, you might you might have like a, you know, orchestra one, orchestra two, ambient, bass, drums, miscellaneous lead. That I think that seems like a typical thing that we end up doing a lot of. Mm-hmm. Or you you know for you could have like horns, you, you know, there's sort of you break it out however you want, and then you know sometimes the, if they need something stemmed out further within a stem. We'll just field the request on the day. Um, the The main trick is that with, sorry, hit the mic there. With um, you know, master bus compression. If you if you've like got a Pro Tool session and it's just like a song, for instance, a lot of times mm-hmm. you have everything running through a master bus, and there's like one compressor or limiter or whatever you you got on that bus. And if you try and print mm-hmm. solo, you know, like say just the drums and print it, and then you do that with the bass, and then you do that with the guitars. In the end, if you put all those stems together, your gain stage is going to be different. You know, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be all messed up. Your 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 gain structure, because the compressor and right. limiter is acting on each of those things individually, and then when you compile them, the the gain is going to be too high. It's going to be distorted. So, but you, you often want to rely on some of the sonic character of what you're getting from the compressor and the limiter on the, on the, the master bus, right? So, <clears throat> what we end up doing is we create, a, in the matrix that I'm talking about, we, we create a template where we've got uh, each, each section going to a stem bus, Right, so like all the different perk and drums maybe going to like a perk bus, all the different you know strings and things going to like a, an orc one bus, and the horns and other stabs maybe going to orc two bus. 
And each of those buses will have its own compressor and limiter on it. And then we have to Mm -hmm. carefully, you know, tweak all of that so that it then all those things sum together and go through a master. It doesn't have anything on it. So that you imbue sonic character on each of those stems across the whole mix. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, you know, I, I come from the the way I was taught to mix, it was a very out of the box idea of mixing while still maintaining in the box because, you know, obviously with my with my studio I can't have I mean, maybe one of the lesser expensive boards, but even then, like space can't get me uh a maybe 48 channel console which you know some of my tracks so, some of the things that I produce for even my own band with the horn section and you know layering keyboard sounds it can get up to 30 40 individual tracks but I was taught by one of my mentors to do a lot of busing. So I will always have a drums bus. If I have bass overdubs, things like that, I will have a bass bus, a guitar bus, keys bus, things like that. So what you've described with individual busing for certain elements, and that's what goes into the stems, that makes a whole lot of sense to me um, because, because of how I was taught. Um, I think for everybody listening, I think that's a that's a pretty good... Um, idea. If you have individual tracks and you need to make them more coherent, um, and and glue with one another better, especially things like drums. Which, if people are recording drums, um, acoustic drums, it is a learning curve. Um, busing definitely helps with acoustic drums. It certainly helped me uh, learn how to better get drum sounds. Um, so I, I totally understand what you're talking about with uh, your matrix and how you set up individual busing for uh, routing to stems. That, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, when you're in mix um, and when you're looking at that process, do you spend more time in the box or do you take a lot of things out of the box? I mean, you, you spoke about having a console in your studio, um, are you are you one to prefer going analog? Well, I say I used to be a lot more than I am now. <clears throat> I think in part because the technology's gotten pretty good. <clears throat> I used to I used to have, yeah. for instance, or I still have a uh, a reel to reel, you know, like an MCI deck. It, I think it's like a track it's like from the 70s um and we used to use it like a plug-in like we'd run out of pro tools into the tape and then back from the tape player into pro tools and it would warm things up and it would give things a little harmonic distortion sometimes in a nice way and um mm-hmm. then a friend of mine a couple of years ago was like hey you should check out this uh this tape plugin that Crane Song is making called the Phoenix. And I was like, <laughs> okay, and let's let's run that sort of head to head. And we did that and I couldn't tell the difference. And I was like, damn, all right, well, maybe I'm just gonna slap the Phoenix on here now. You know? And then more and more th- <laughs> more and more things like that started to happen. 
You know what I mean? Um, I'm not going to speak about specific plugins, but I mean, Universal Audio, <clears throat> they've got tons of great compressors. Um, it sort of made it like, well, I'm going to stop using this analog compressor now. And, you know, I, I rely heavily on um, all of the mic pre's, analog mic pre's. Those are just kind of set up. I've got a lot of different ones. And I don't really see myself getting away from those. But I'm doing a lot less, uh, you know, analog uh, after the fact mixing, you know, running out to, you know, to compressors and things. I mean, we'll use, you know, we'll use an 1176 or or Distressor or something like that on uh, something going to tape, as it were, um, on the input. Right. Because I think that sometimes just gives it a certain character and. You know, we got it laying around, and it's easy enough to patch it in. But so, yeah, mix-wise, and then also because I'm in the business of making changes and doing notes sure. for these film and TV things a lot. So if somebody wants something different, I need to pull it up exactly as it was, tweak it. And, and in fact, you know, because I work with my mixer, this guy James, he also has a mirror setup of what I have in my studio at his house. So sometimes, you know, we'll be kind of done with the work day and he needs to tweak something for a client at his house. So we need to have kind of the same setup. And so a lot of it does become easier to just do digitally in the box. Hey everybody, we got to take a little bit of a break here, but we'll be right back real soon with some more from Tree Adams. a lot of uh, perhaps outside of the box instruments, shall we say. Um, one that I, I see coming up uh, a lot in, th- in some of my research uh, was the oud. Um, do you have um, depending on depending on what you're recording, do you have a signal chain for the way in you, that you prefer or are you pretty open? with how you record different instruments? I mean, I always have this Neumann 87 that I'm speaking to you through set up uh, going into a Neve mic pre. Um, That's kind of like the go-to. And then I've got like a Chandler compressor that I'll engage on some things. Um, And then I've got like a couple other... uh, mic pre's that are that have very different character like i've got uh, this ua 2610 that uh gets kind of grungy and crunchy and then i've got uh Mm. a grace i forgot what model that is i think it's an m101 it's just super pristine and clean uh which i rarely use because i'm more about the grittiness um so mm. those things I'll I'll easily kind of patch between them if I want, and and that and that gives me a 
a wide array of character going in. Um, and then mic wise, I've got a bunch of different mics laying around and, you know, I will switch sometimes just to kind of give things a little bit of like sonic, uh, like in, in, inherent sonic difference. Uh, if you just use different microphones, they have different sort of EQ propensities and sometimes they just kind of live together better. Like if you record everything through the same mic, totally. I feel like sometimes you get it, you get into some problems. Um, and, and I think there are different, uh, <clears throat> different instruments laying around me that, uh, yeah, that, that want a different microphone, you know I mean? Uh, if I'm if I'm playing a bass situation, you know, I'm not necessarily going to use this U87. You know, I might throw an RE20 on sure. there, or I, even a D112. <clears throat> and there's a lot of stuff that I want to kind of have a narrow frequency in the mix. Sometimes I'll just throw an SM57 up there, and so yeah, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll kind of mix it up. And I'm basically like in this cockpit, surrounded by uh, tons of exotic instruments and sort of normal band stuff hmm. um for a while gotcha. for a while my daughter had a had a band um with her friends and they were sort of taking over the studio so we had drums bass and guitar sort of set up with with a sound system for them to sing through <laughs> and i was kind of working in the middle of all that that was that was fun <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure now the question the question with that is did she take any inspiration from her father's own band the Hatters? <laughs> um I, you know <laughs> I think I think uh Josephine is my daughter's name. Uh she's kind of uh she's 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 into the blues and stuff like that and and she's into you know old jazz and and funk and stuff but I think she and her friends they they listen to maybe more you know, modern pop music and then also like 80s rock, like the almost uh, synthy 80s rock stuff, not the not the hairband stuff as much. So they were doing some of those kinds mm. of things. But right now, actually, and my son is a drummer, my son Tebow, and so Tebow and Josephine and I, we play every Thursday night at 6 o'clock. We, we do a live stream on Facebook and Instagram where we play as a three-piece and we we do Hatter's tunes. We'll do funk and blues, and people will send in requests. So it's been kind of fun because the kids have been learning um, new songs and, you know, getting out of their comfort zone. I'm I'm out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm, like, I'm learning things like people are requesting every week that I don't even know. It's a lot of fun. That's really cool. And, you know... I mean, there's 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 something there's something kind of beautiful about that about that sort of next generation playing playing uh, playing your music. I mean, I know my my father, you know, he he wrote songs for his own band, Dream Speak, and I I end up playing some of them um, every now and again. Sometimes I'll play them with his old bandmates. Yeah, that's um, awesome. <laughs> and uh, you know, it definitely keeps that keeps that sort of fire alive. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, 
but the 25th anniversary of uh, the Madcap of Adventures of the Avocado Overlord just passed, didn't it? Trying to remember when, uh, I think that was 93 that that came out. And so that would be, now we're at, yeah, so the 25th anniversary was, was it, yeah, we're, we're a couple about, of years ago now. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. <clears throat> we had done like a, a reunion show at the Bowery Ballroom in New York. I can't remember when that was. It may, maybe five years ago that we did that. Um, and we've been talking about maybe doing something else, you know, I, it would be fun to, uh, to get together and see everybody, you know, a couple of the guys are, uh, I guess John Kaplan, the bass player is out here in LA. Um, and the other few guys are in New York, Billy and Tommy and, uh, Adam Evans. And I guess our old drummer, Bill Reeves played with us too. He's in New York or New Jersey or something, I think. So it would probably have to be an East yeah, Coast thing. I, but. I was, yeah, I, I was talking to, I, I was talking to Billy J just a couple of days ago, um, and it was it was kind of fun talking about some of that, those tunes, especially now that uh, Tom Kalen is releasing that, uh, releasing that EP he made, what twenty years ago now. Um, and there are tracks <laughs> with you and Billy and on them, and and yeah. uh, some of I the forgot old, about those, some of the uh, old Dream Speak guys, Av- Avram Levinsky. Yeah, Avram. Yeah, he just he just started he just started releasing some of that stuff. I think I think the whole EP's out on YouTube and some other places now. It's sounding really good. Um, yeah, I forgot there, there's some cool stuff on there. There's some cool stuff on there. Um, there's a there's a lot of really fun playing on that, um, yeah. So it was definitely fun to talk to Billy about that stuff um, and get into that Hatter's uh, mindset, of course. Um, and I I find it very cool, you know. Yet again, you know, your I I think it's really fun that your kids are playing your music. Um, and getting into that that backlog that, that dad has yeah it's um, it's it's fun to share i think that's a <clears throat> fun to share with them for sure yeah now with with your kids they're obviously musicians as we've been talking about um have they have they gotten the writing bug from you yet <clears throat> uh josephine recently wrote a song um on guitar and that that's kind of cool and i think she's going to do more of that um, and she helped me write, uh, a couple of pieces actually for that show, the hundred, um, that were sort of vocal pieces. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing a little of that with her. Um, Tebow, you know, he, he studied, uh, the piano and then, uh, he started playing drums. And so he's, He's sort of less interested in kind of going down the music path, but he kind of like, you know, plays with his dad and his sister reluctantly. But he's gotten to be pretty good. And in fact, when we were in New Orleans, like when when I would play this weekly gig um, on Frenchman Street, the, the only way I could have him in the club 
because he was like 17 at the time, was to have him play in the band. So he was like, he would set up with like a little percussion rig and play along with all these monster cats. So, you know, and he would be, uh, you know, just kind of, after a while, he was just part of the band and, you know, he was, he was hanging in there. I mean, I said to him like, look, you got to be tasty. You got to listen, you know? And if, uh, if anybody kind of gives you the, the look to kind of lay back, you got to lay back, you know? And it, it, and he kind of learned pretty quickly. Um, it was, it was kind of a good, a good training and it, yeah, he's, he's got a good feel. I mean, you know, I, I told him it's another language and you can have this language for your whole life, whether you decide to go into this to make a living or anything is another thing, but you know, um, this is something that you can speak with people from all different cultures all around the world. And it, makes people happy you know when you share it with people so that's uh yeah see where that goes (laughs) (laughs) i i i can understand i can understand that vibe um you talking about him being in the club being the perk player in, in your in your band um reminded me of a gig that i had about three months ago now i guess now four months ago uh, for uh, Mardi Gras, we did this little semi-parade thing, and then it ended at a club. And it was with a New Orleans marching band. Um, cool. And there was a little bit of there was a little bit of hassle starting the show, but it ended up once once we got into it, it ended up being great. But I I I like that you made a point to tell your kid, you know, if somebody uh, if somebody gives you the eye to lay back, you you lay back, because on a gig that on that gig I was the only drummer, and I ended up uh, at the club. They have a house kit, so since I was the only drummer, there was no bass drummer. I ended up uh, playing kit for the club section of that of that one, and the first song was sort of our sound check. So <laughs> the band leader. Um, because I wasn't sure what he wanted, I played a fill, not a not a really ambitious fill or anything, but a fill nonetheless. And he turned around, stopped playing his sousaphone, looked at me, went too busy, and I went, "Okay, that's how we're playing the rest of the gig." <laughs> you know, the anything from a look to uh, a word to you know. Two words like that, you know, you you get a feel for it, and it's even though some people might hear that, go, oh, somebody yelled at you on stage, you know, that's 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 how we communicate, and it's it's a really fun, it's a really fun experience that I kind of wish more people could understand because it is such a universal language. Yeah, it's it's cool, man. It's it's like. It's a great thing that you're experiencing stuff like what you're talking about too, because this is like, you know, how you learn, and and then and then eventually, you know, you're going to be the, the older dog, showing somebody, you know, hey man, rein it in, <laughs> and right. and it's it's a, <clears throat> it's a fun thing to, 
to also be able to play with different age groups and stuff. I find that's really cool. I love playing with, you know, people who are older than me, you know, younger than me. It's like you get, there's something about that. You know, it's it's a, a great way to bridge, uh, you know, cultures. It's, it's so cool. As I'm sure you all know by now, I play in bands and write music for both myself as a solo artist and my main band, Danger 8. Now, in my limited experience of writing for myself and my band, I've very much found myself experiencing writer's block and just generally coming up short in my writing. For this reason, it's particularly interesting to talk to people whose job it is to write music on a deadline. Tree's story is one that especially piques my interest as he's been in a band with a record deal and has toured all across the country. At heart, he's still a true-to-form rock and roller, which is very much apparent if you watch his live stream, Stir Crazy from the Treehouse. However, he's also very much a composer with some pretty incredible chops and a really cool resume. In this way, I see a bit of a similarity to our very first guest, Jerry Danielson, who also has a pretty long history both as a band member, in bands, and as a composer. Ultimately, my conversation with Tree has led me to a conclusion. From the outside, someone with no experience in the professional composer space, myself included, might see composition for things like major motion pictures or television shows as a completely different beast from writing for a band or a solo artist. Having that deadline, as well as writing for a theme, well, it seems quite daunting. However, in reality, it's still just writing music. It's still a creative process, and in some ways, it's similar to collaborating on a song with a friend or a bandmate. What my conversation with Tree also did was further back up a point that Will Maggot made in our second episode. If you have a piece of music you've written, a piece that you could finish, finish it. Even if it's not your favorite thing in the world, just get it done. You never know what could happen with it, who might want to use it, or who it might inspire. For Will, that was his least favorite song of the Afrobeat record he made about 10 years ago. In Tree's case, he's got a folder of finished Muzak tracks, waiting for the next opportunity he needs to use them. Tree, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've given me a deep look into a part of this industry that I didn't think I'd get an opportunity to learn much about, as well as helping me find new ways to look at my own composing. When this crazy time passes and you're next in San Francisco, drop by the studio. We'll be ready to record when you get here. For all of you listening, be sure to check out some of Tree's work. You can find episodes of NCIS New Orleans on CBS All Access and episodes of The 100 on The CW. For those of you interested in getting some good live rock music from home, check out Tree's Facebook live stream, Stir Crazy from the Treehouse. And if you want some really good jam band rock and roll, check out the Hatter's debut album, The Madcap Adventures of the Avocado Overlord, which just celebrated its 26th anniversary. Welcome to Blue Girl Gear Talk. 
Today I wanted to change up my normal format and talk about something that we in the engineer and producer space talk about somewhat frequently, which is the plug-in versus hardware debate. Believe it or not, though, this is also something I've noticed come up with composers and other people who write music. We, as musicians and writers, have something of a gold mine when it comes to all the software that we have available to us. There are virtual instruments beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> Strings, synths, acoustic pianos, electromechanical instruments like Rhodes and Wurlitzer keyboards, emulations of individual horns and entire horn sections, endless drum samples, you name it, they got it. With that said, is the software really all it's made up to be? Well, that answer is somewhat complex and will most certainly depend on the user. Short answer, though, yeah and no. Plugins, soft synths, emulations, they're all fantastic when used in the right context and used with an added bit of human element. For people with limited budget and or limited access to the real thing, this stuff is fantastic. You can do whatever you want with it and have endless amount of opportunities to experiment. For composers, it allows us to go anywhere with a laptop and a keyboard, even an iPad or a phone, and compose with any and every instrument we could possibly think of. In my case, I'm a big fan of the hybrid approach. I have a studio with some pretty cool old school and even some new gear. Rhodes piano, Hammond organ, a couple of vintage and modern synths, even a Nord. However, I find when I'm fleshing out ideas or need sounds from things I either don't have or instruments I can't play, I then find myself going to software. The same goes for mixing. I love taking things out of the box and being able to mix things with tactile knobs, switches, and faders. But my limited outboard selection, mixed with the fact that there are a lot of really good-sounding plugins, I end up finding myself mostly gravitating towards mixing in the box. Will that change? Probably. I have a feeling it will with the coming purchases of some new outboard gear, which I will be sure to talk about in future Gear Talk segments. However, even so, I still know that a hybrid of inside and outside of the box will be my style for the foreseeable future, both in my writing and my mixing habits. It's a comfortable way of doing things, and it's a really good way to experiment. For those who have the ability to but haven't tried it yet, pull some stems out of the box and give hybrid mixing a try. It's very freeing, and you might find yourself getting into a new workflow that you will thoroughly enjoy. This is Music from Blue Girl, a segment about works in progress here at the studio. Today I have a special treat for you all. It's something that I don't often play and only recently got back to working on. Today, I'm going to be showing you the first real song I ever wrote. Now, nearly 10 years later, it still has no name and no immediate plans. However, I have recorded it and I love the way it's turning out. So, this song might be on the release schedule coming up here pretty soon. Now. I'm not going to say much about this track because I want to leave you guys a little bit surprised. If I may be perfectly honest with you, this is a style of songwriting I don't really do much of right now, so it sounds quite different from anything else you may have heard from me. So without further ado, here's my nameless first song. Enjoy. 
that's our show, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Tree Adams for coming on the show today. It was really cool to get an inside look at what it's like working on music for film and television. To all my listeners, I really hope you enjoyed my very first song. It's really near and dear to my heart, and I can't wait to finally finish it. For all my fellow studio rats out there, I want to hear your thoughts on the hardware versus software debate and what your workflows look like. Tag us on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Ready to Record, and the studio is at Blue Girl Productions SF. For now, though, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>